Hello lab mates and welcome to the STEM Lab Podcast where we highlight women in STEM, that is science, technology, engineering, and math, especially women of color. I am your host, Dr. Sabrina Walthall, and I'm here today with Dr. Chastity Bradford, an Associate Professor of Biology at Tuskegee University and the Principal Investigator for her lab, the Bradford Lab. Her lab is currently using hemodynamic, molecular, biochemical, and immunohistological analysis to determine if ACE2 overexpression prevents angiotensin 2 induced HTN and rescues pulmonary hypertension. They are doing such great work in her lab. I'm so excited to learn more. Let's get into it. Chastity, welcome to the STEM Lab podcast. Thank you. So we are so glad to have you, Dr. Bradford. I'm sorry, lab mates. I'm so used to knowing her. I call her Chastity, but she is Dr. Bradford. So here we always start out talking about the career. And so if you would just tell us right now, what are you doing in your lab? In the Bradford lab at Tuskegee University, we are currently studying hypertension, which is high blood pressure. And specifically, we're studying the role of the renin-angiotensin system in cardiovascular disease. The renin-angiotensin system is this system of molecules that's responsible for controlling our blood pressure. So when we talk about controlling our blood pressure, are there several different uh, proteins that actually affect blood pressure, or is there just one key molecule? So there are a number of factors and molecules that affect our blood pressure. So there are genetic factors that affect blood pressure. There are dietary factors that affect blood pressure. Stress, those factors affect blood pressure. And molecules like renin, angiotensin II, ACE2, which is a common enzyme that we've been talking about in the news with COVID-19. Right. So when we talk about COVID-19, when you say the ACE2, the first thing I remember them saying is that it's some of the medication that is taken for blood pressure that actually causes those um, receptors to express more. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yes. One of the common conversations in the news has been about comorbidities. And what are comorbidities? So comorbidities are one or more conditions that one has at the same time. So a person can have hypertension and diabetes. So that is considered a comorbid condition. And so a lot of the news lately has been talking about people who have been infected with COVID-19 having these comorbid conditions. And so that really is what comorbid conditions are that um, as it relates to the news and diet and medication. Yeah. So now that we uh, hear that you're working, and I'll just keep it at high blood pressure in your lab, working on particular factors, can you tell us exactly in your lab, um, what do you all do? What, how do you study? Because I want our listeners to understand what a day in the lab might be like who's studying high blood pressure. They may not understand or know what goes into that. Yes. So the Bradford lab utilizes animal models to study hypertension. And there are several animal models that exist that researchers can use to study hypertension because they mimic human hypertension or high blood pressure. And one of the models that we use is spontaneously hypertensive rat model. It's commonly called the SHR model. 
And this is a genetic model of hypertension. So these animals, they develop high blood pressure over time and they're born with certain genes that lead to high blood pressure. So are you saying that high blood pressure, I think you said in the beginning, can be genetic based as well? Yes. So there are numerous factors that lead to high blood pressure. Genetics, that's one factor that can lead to high blood pressure. Isolation and stress, those things can lead to high blood pressure. Dietary influences, those things can lead to high blood pressure. But what's so amazing about uh, this disease is that we can control it. This is one of those things that we can control. So although, yes, there are some genes that predispose people to developing hypertension, there are things that you can do to prevent the development of hypertension. The other thing that I'd like to mention too, along those lines, are that uh, along the lines of having genetic models of hypertension is in addition to the SHR model that we use in our lab, mm -hmm. we also use a model that pre is predisposed to developing lupus. And we know that lupus patients typically develop some forms of heart disease particularly develop atherosclerosis. And so one of our collaborators, we collaborate with someone else at Tuskegee University, and we use a, another model. This is a mouse model. It is NZBWF1. It's a mouse model that is predisposed to developing systemic lupus erythematosus, or lupus. Currently, um, I formed a collaboration with uh, one of my colleagues. She's more senior colleague at Tuskegee University. And I just reached out to her and asked if she was interested in collaborating with me on a project because she looks at lupus and she didn't study the blood vessels. She wasn't studying the heart. She wasn't studying the lungs. And so um, we decided to work together and mentor and train two PhD students who are studying lupus and looking at um, the impact of some interventions on how the heart remodels and the blood vessels. And so whenever we do studies, her students um, will, you know, she studies, she's an immunologist. And so her studies focus on immunology, while mine may focus on vascular remodeling. And this is another way that we can maximize our efforts uh, at, on a small campus. So for our listeners who don't know uh, that she is at Tuskegee University, which is a historically Black college and university. As you talked, I heard you say that you all have PhD students. And so talk a little bit about the role of a PhD student and the different people that are in a lab with you, what uh, they bring to the table. So typically in a lab, you may have um, PhD students. So these are students who are working on their um, doctoral degrees. And our students at Tuskegee, they, we have an integrated bioscience program. And so these students are working on PhDs and collaborating with principal investigators like myself and others to integrate their knowledge so that it's not just in one discipline, but it's an integrated uh, degree that they end up achieving at the end. And so we have PhD students, those working on doctoral degrees. We have master's students, those students um, who are working on graduate degrees, but at the master's level. Mm -hmm. uh, I also have working in the labs, we have undergraduates um, because we're typically, we're at an undergraduate focused institution 
And so at Tuskegee, we have majority of undergraduates and we work to teach and train them uh, in their, to prepare them for their future careers. I can just imagine uh, the pendulum that you go through in a day. This is so true, but what you probably would hear my students say, the undergraduates would say that they are pushed just as hard as the master level and PhD students because I set expectations of them to prepare them for the world that they will face. And so um, that is one of my personal goals is that I won't water it down. I will not water it down for them. They have to reach, they have to reach and they do, they do. If you set expectations, the students will get there. Maybe not as fast as a PhD student or a master's student, but they will get there and they will be blown away at what they're capable of. I'm so glad that you have segued us over into pushing your undergraduate and that being a personal goal. One of the things that I always see uh, when or love when you post on your um, page is about what you're doing in your classroom. And I think one of the things that I uh, saw and was just like, yes, is when you said that you were using, um, was it rap transmit? Yes. Yes, in your classroom to talk about, was it, was it that blood pressure? Or... No, what did I use? Was it diabetes? No, no. Either way, I was just like, oh my God. So I was like, she's using the culture. Yes. I (laughs) used Rapid and I used Janet Jackson Control. Yes. Janet Jackson Control. I used that that to talk about neural control. Yeah. I I tend to use our culture. I do. To reach them. And I really appreciate that so tell me how did you in the classroom get to that point and how have your students received it music has always been a part of who i am and as i went through out the phd as i was earning my phd you use your your resources i use my faith i use my music i use all of that as a kind of a something that you can connect to when you're going through the PhD because it definitely is a process Mm -hmm. and you have to find a way to balance. And so music has always been a part of who I am and part of my authentic self. And when I completed the PhD, I feel like I kind of let that part of me go, if you will. I was so focused on the postdoc and so focused on you know, achieving that next thing, that next part or path in the career. And it wasn't until I was able to run my own lab uh, and, you know, run my own classroom the way that I wanted to run it, that then I was able to allow my, my mind to really just relax. And I could just bring, I could just begin to see a lot of different concepts that I was teaching I was beginning to see how I could apply those concepts uh, with music, how it could merge music and the concepts that I was teaching to really engage the students. I noticed over the years, I've been at Tuskegee for seven years, Mm -hmm. and I have noticed over the years that students change, right? We all change, but the students have changed. And so when I first started at Tuskegee, I wasn't using as much music or different ways to engage the students. But over probably within the last three years, I've tried to come with new novel ways to reach the students. And one of them has been with finding out what they like, 
what engages them, what tools do they like so that I can meet them where they are to get them where we need them to be. And so music was that way. And I tried it out in a couple of classes and it worked. And so I have been doing my best to uh, continue to work that, to engage the students. And I just engage them on Instagram with, you know, hey, this is what we're going to be talking about in class today. And they come to class eager, ready to figure out what is she talking about? What are we going to be talking about today? You know, you know, the AACU, the American Association of Colleges and Universities, pushes for us to integrate uh, a lot of what they call culturally relevant subject matter. When I see you post, I'm just like, oh, she's so on it. And as you say, you push your students, you push me to be like, so Sabrina, what can you be doing in your classroom? Anyway, it's just always so good to know that we have faculty out there that care and understand that people learn in all different ways. And when, sometimes when you can use a point that people can connect to, Yes. Bring them to where you want them to be. That is just always a good thing. So I agree. <laughs> so tell me, I know uh, we talked about um, what you're doing in your classroom and how you bring the undergraduates uh, up to the level, even in the lab, but also in the classroom. Do you receive any pushback from students? So how do you combat that when you're in the classroom? So to answer that first question about whether or not I received any pushback from the students over the years, and I have, I have received pushback from students because I do push and I set high expectations uh, because as I mentioned before, I know what they're going to face. Uh, and not only that, I set high expectations because I want them to be aware of how awesome they are and their possibility, how I think they get blown away at the end of the semester by how much they've learned, how yeah. much they've learned. And it's because of that push. But I have gotten some pushback from students who said, you're doing too much, Dr. Brown. This is, you're doing too much. This is too hard. And I tell them, it's not. You're capable. You're capable. And I'm going to keep pushing. Uh, even though you push back, I'm going to keep pushing because I know at the end of the day, when you move on, it may be delayed gratification for me, but I know in the end, you will appreciate it. Tell me how it's technology affected the classroom. Because like I remember yeah, saying, um, having students in my classroom with technology, although you want them to be able to use it, it is a distraction. Uh, and so how have you been able to work through that in your class? Good question. I consider the students that we teach currently, uh, technology natives, they have always, always had technology. Mm -hmm. And so we have to find a way to integrate the technology into the classroom, but also understand that it can be a distraction. So what I typically do is I have poll everywhere where the students can utilize, uh, they use their cell phones to take to do polls and I'll ask a question in class and they respond using their phone. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I integrate, you know, their cell phones into the classroom. So that's one thing. Another thing that I've utilized is Instagram and uh, Twitter and I will post something and then ask them after class to post something that they learned using on Twitter to me and they get credit for those things. So trying to really fuse what they use on a regular basis 
uh, into the classroom has been important. The other thing that um, I also just tell my students is, okay, real life, real talk. You're in a meeting, you have your cell phone, what are you going to do? And it can be a distraction. So what are you gonna do? I tell them, I say, what I do, because I can get distracted as well, is I turn my phone off on silent, I turn it on silent and I put it face down. Yeah. I said, you have all these flashes going off and, you know, somebody's message you here and there and you can be distracted and pulled away from, from this bomb content that I'm about to give you and deliver. So I need you to focus. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm about to pop this you know? <laughs> This is live. I tell this is Broadway. Ain't no going back to this. This is live. Not recorded. <laughs> so I utilize their technology in the classroom and make some attempts to get them to utilize it outside of the classroom as well. And now, with, um, and with COVID-19 and this pandemic, we have had to really, we've been forced to move everything remotely and move everything quickly. And so um, I think we now, all of us who are in STEM especially, have to really begin to rethink how we're going to reach our students and make sure that they're learning. So how are we gonna measure learning, making sure that they're learning as opposed to just watching us, you know, on these Zoom lectures or go to meeting lectures. Like how are we going to engage them and measure and make sure that they're learning? That's something that I'm also interested in figuring out and helping the community to figure out, not only for the college level, but K-12. Uh, I'm really always glad to see that you do things in the community uh, on your Facebook page. And I know you do a lot of work with health disparities. And since I'm from Alabama and you're in what I consider to be rural Alabama, or as we call it, LA, lower Alabama, I really am interested in the work that you do there. So can you tell us a bit more about what I consider to be your community sciences work? Yes. Uh, One of the things that I discovered about myself as I moved through the PhD was that I really liked community work. I really liked community work. I was a NSF GK-12 fellow when I was at UAB working on my PhD. And what those fellows did is we went out into the K-12 system. We worked with teachers to help the teachers. We trained the teachers to teach science because we were that group of scientists, the young group of scientists on the cutting edge of research. And we were were in charge of helping the teachers uh, that were going into the classroom, helping them create uh, science experiments, design science experiments, or just teach some concepts to their students. And for the first time in my life, I guess, a light bulb went off for me when I walked through one of the hallways in one of the high schools and I saw that there were such huge disparities in education. And here I am at the lab bench working on hypertension, uh, you know, for years. And here I am now in this, at that time, here I was walking through the hallway in this school in an area where they had limited resources. And I found myself in a position where I'm like, okay, it's going to take about 10 years before this drug that we're working on in the lab 
actually gets to the patient. And here we have people in the community that are suffering right now in education. So what can I do right now to make a change? And that kind of led me to the next position, which was I served as an assistant dean of the graduate school at the University of Texas in El Paso. And the goal of, uh, well, I was there was a grant that I had there and the goal of that grant and my role in administration was to increase the number of underrepresented students who obtain PhDs in science, technology, engineering, and math. And so I just have always had this passion for service in general mm -hmm. and community service. And since I started at Tuskegee, I've always been working in the community because of course, as uh, um, someone in academia, you're always doing teaching, you're doing research and you're doing service. And so the service that I do in the community here and uh, really nationwide is centered around health disparities. So I have worked with some principals in the elementary schools to fund programs that um, train the families in healthy lifestyles. So they have been healthy lifestyles programs. So we have changed what the snack shack, if you will, what that looks like. So they offer healthier snack options in the mm -hmm. school because the children spend a lot of time in the school. It made sense to really try to make some changes in the school itself in their day-to-day -day, um, interactions. We also have two gyms that we placed in two of the elementary schools purchase fitness equipment for parents and teachers and staff to utilize uh, mm -hmm. when they're on campus. And so um, I have been, I have been blessed with an opportunity to study hypertension. Uh, and I wanted to, as a part of just who I am, to give back to the community that, you know, have, has really raised me and reared me. And so that community is the rural community. I grew up in a rural community, so that it makes sense for me to serve in one. In the K-12, I've also worked with the National Science Foundation as a faculty fellow. So I am currently an NSF GK-12 faculty fellow now. And what I do now is I go into the school systems and teach seventh grade life science modules that I design based on the curriculum that they have. And so one of the ones that I really love and the students really love and they engage in is one called uh, Super Mario Brothers DNA RNA. And so in collaboration with some of my undergraduate students, we utilize Luigi and Mario, one of them's DNA, one of them's RNA, and that game to really engage the students and teach them using the lyrics of Super Mario Brothers theme song to teach them uh, the differences between DNA and RNA. And then one of their activities is to save the princess. And so that's yeah. their, our way of teaching them about the base pairing and different things like that. Or am I allowed to use them if I'm doing any curriculum anywhere? Yes, so they can be used. We have, I have a couple of them published using Alex, which is that learning exchange for teachers to utilize. Mm -hmm. DNA, RNA, this one, my Super Mario Brothers has not been published yet, but it will. Well, look, I've heard you say, you know, because that's who I am. And I think, um, let me just say this, 
in knowing you when I met you, you always seemed to be a person who knew who you were. Moving us on or segueing us into our uh, second segment, which is all about the journey and about uh, how did you know or uh, when did you know that you really like science and that you wanted to either be a doctor or to be in the lab? Uh, when was that moment for you when it just clicked like, yeah, this is what I want to do? Yeah, I think when I look back on the journey to where I am today as a woman in science, there are a number of things that have occurred along the way that were part of the journey, but I didn't see them when I was going through them. I didn't see them. It's now that I reflect back that I can now acknowledge the different things that have led me to where I am today. One of them has been my family structure and the careers uh, that surround me. And so my, I grew up in a rural town, McCray, Georgia, Southeast Georgia. And my mother was a nurse, a registered nurse, and she, had, she, she was obtaining her master's in nursing. And so I was always surrounded by all of these microbiology books and things like that on the shelves. Uh, she tells me about times when I would write on the door using chalk and try to erase it so she wouldn't see it. So I was always teaching. There wasn't anybody there, but me and maybe some stuffed animals, but I was teaching somebody something. She said I was always, every time we went to Walmart or some store like that, I would get some type of learning, some type of book. And uh, to read. And my dad would always ask my mom, why do you have her reading during the summer? And my mom would be like, that's what she wants to do. I'm not forcing her to read, you know? And so right. I think it, some of it was just kind of a part of who I, part of my DNA, part of who I am, part of my authentic self. And the other parts are things that I saw along the way. So I would go with my mother to, she worked at the VA, a VA in Dublin, Georgia, and in the cardiovascular unit. And so I would go with her to work sometimes. Uh, and I remember her always saying, don't be the nurse, be the physician, don't be the nurse, be the physician. So oftentimes we hear things from our parents, we hear things from our peers, and those influence us, whether consciously or subconsciously. Uh, and so I would hear that a lot growing up. Um, the church that I grew up in, Carinthia Me Church in McCray, had played a huge role in who I am, not just for the biblical principles, not that part of it, because I really wasn't paying attention, if you will, as a kid in yeah. church. But what it really did for me was to probably uh, keep me away from a lot of what could have been going on outside of church. So when you're in an environment um, and the people around you are, you know, having fun and you want to be there. So we were always together. So a lot of my friends, um, we went to church together. And so we spent a lot of time in church. We we're always at Sunday school together, uh, a choir rehearsal together. And we had a lot of fun. Don't get me wrong. We had a lot of fun too. Um, but I think my church family had a lot to do with uh, who I am too today uh, because they really pushed us to do Black history programs and things like that. And so um, that definitely was part of my journey. Um, the other thing that I remember was fifth grade. I remember opening this, the science book in fifth grade and seeing 
a picture of somebody sneeze. I remember this. And they had this microscope and they had the um, kind of a micrograph of images of what you see in the sneeze, what's really in a sneeze. And for some reason that just stood out to me. And I just remember asking the teacher about this, you know, image and it, it just stuck with me. Like, you know, there's some things that are on the surface that you cannot see. And it just kind of intrigued me. And I think that was one of the things uh, that I do remember, you know, um, about my love for science. So my family, uh, my uh, fifth grade experience, biology in high school, I remember dissecting fetal pigs and that kind of excited me. And I took AP biology and I was always just asking a lot of questions. I remember some of my friends being like, were you um, thinking about these questions ahead of time before class? I was like, no, they just came up, <laughs> you know? And so, um, and Mr. Hendricks, I remember him. He was one of my high school teachers and he really just pulled me to the side once and was like, you know, you have something, you know, you have something here. And so that, kind of resonated with me. You know, I think those were the things really early on, as I look back and reflect on the journey, those probably were the bits and pieces that have uh, paved the way, if you will, to where I am today. On a not so great note, my grandmother died of heart disease. And so I remember in college, when I was trying to make that decision on whether or not I wanted to go to medical school or graduate school, I started to reflect on that and really begin to think about why. Why was it that she died of heart disease? What was it, you know? Mm -hmm. And my rising junior year in college, Dr. Pamela Gunner-Smith, she was the head of the biology department at the time at Spelman College. She sent me on a, um, it was a research internship at Loyola University in Chicago for one summer. And it was that that really turned me on to research and changed my trajectory that led and have led me to where I am today. I did some research on hypertension uh, with Pamela Lucchese and Pamela Lucchese was at Loyola University in Chicago and Pamela moved to UAB in Birmingham and called me up and said, are you interested in working with me at UAB? And uh, I decided that that's the path that I wanted to take and ended up working with her uh, studying heart disease. You've heard before, Chastity is a graduate of Spelman College in her undergraduate, which is also a historically black college and university. It stays with me into, you know, your undergraduate experience and how that played in your career choice. And you said it at the end that that was a big part of it. And when you said it here, like, that's the HBCU experience. And so I just want to talk about that for a minute because, you know, some of our listeners have young students who they are trying to guide, uh, whether they be cousins or daughters or sons or family members, period. So when we talk about that HBCU experience and we talk about STEM, uh, what is it about it that definitely will help someone persist in that career path? I believe HBCUs and other MSIs are what is called minority-serving institutions. HBCUs like Spelman College have what I call that special sauce. Mm. It is that intangible thing 
that one cannot articulate, but you can only experience. It is something that occurs day one when you step foot on that campus and you see all of these people who who are your age group, who may be, you know, kind of your age, who are going after their dreams and you all are you all share that same experience you don't feel that one person is smarter than the other you all feel the same challenges you see each other in class and you all are taking the biochemistry the difficult classes the organic chemistries together as biology majors you share those experiences you share studying late nights together and if you choose to join sororities you share those bonds as well and you know there are certain courses that you have to take that you wouldn't take at another campus i know for us it was adw the african diaspora and the world course it was a course that we all had to take that exposed us to not just what occurs in the united states but what occurs worldwide Mm-hmm. And it just opens your eyes to the possibility of what you could be, what the people around you could be, and what you guys could do collectively together to change the world. And it's not the big, greater world, but changing your small world, your community, changing your family structure, mm-hmm. changing the, the career trajectory, changing administration, changing the way the world views this or that. And just becoming that change that you want to see. That is what Spellman did for me. And I think that is why we push hard for the HBCU experience. That's well said. Other part of the HBCU experience that I want to highlight is, and it has changed, is the idea of what some call the possible self. And the fact that at Spellman, when I was there, a lot of the faculty I saw, they were African-American or Black American. They were women in STEM. Mm-hmm. And it was a day-to-day interaction with a geneticist, a day-to-day interaction with Black female animal physiologist, Black female mathematician. It was a day-to-day interaction, so much to the point that you just thought this was normal. Right. And so... I think that was another thing that I want to highlight about the HBCU experience is that you begin to see the faculty and you can see the possibilities of who I could possibly become. And I think it's hard sometimes to go into a career where you don't identify with anyone. Right. It's challenging. That is so true. Speaking of challenges, I want to just move us to the conversation of being, as we said, African-American females in STEM and challenges that we uh, might face, if any at all, as we move ourselves through this STEM pipe. Is there any challenge that you feel like you specifically face in this that kind of changed you or helped you? Challenges that I have faced as a woman in STEM are... Work-life balance. I think that has been the major challenge. Yes, Lord. As a woman in STEM who has children and who really wants to push her career forward too. So I want my career to push. 
I want to move my career forward and I desire to have a family. And I remember in graduate school, I worked on a floor with majority women, female scientists. And one of the common things that they would always say was, you know, I, I just hate the fact that I don't have time to spend with my children. Or I would hear them say, I've missed a recital. Or I would hear the more senior women say, I never got married. I never had children because I put this career first. And so that was always in my head, but I, but I was always wanting what I had at home. I always wanted a family. Mm-hmm. I wanted a family. And so I was just determined to figure it out. I can't say that I have. It's still a challenge, but I am determined to keep keep pushing and helping other women who desire to have families, whatever they decide that looks like for them. I want to help them, you know, figure that out. Because uh, a lot of women ask, when, when are graduate students, when should I have children? When should I? So there is no set time. There are times that are better than others, mm-hmm. but there is no set time. It's something that you have to, if you choose to do it, just commit to. Uh, and, you know, someone once explained it as glass balls and rubber balls, that when it comes to the work-life balance, you have to see your family and those things that really matter to you as glass balls and the other things as rubber balls. And when you're trying to balance this thing called life, you don't want to drop those glass balls because they'll break, they'll break and they're broken forever. Can't repair them. But those things that, that will bounce back You know, you can let those slide, but those things like those relationships with your children and your partner and your spouse and, you know, whatever those things are that you value, you see those as glass balls and you just try your best to just maneuver around that concept in terms of work-life balance. And so I think that has been the most challenging. There have been some things in science and STEM where, uh, People on the other side, if you will, administrative side, have attempted to assist. So as we move through tenure and promotion, there's this thing called the tenure clock. So you have about six years before you go up for tenure and promotion. And they have created a clause at most institutions where you can stop that clock. It's called stopping the tenure clock. So if you have children, you can stop that clock and they don't count what you're doing while you're on uh, your break or, or whatever, they don't count uh, that time against you. If you spend a year off, that doesn't count against you. You know, so they tried to do things like that. There are some, because we have to attend conferences and present at conferences. Now you're seeing more babysitting services at some of the conferences where years ago you wouldn't see those services offered. Not only are they offering babysitting services, but also there's some funding so that you can bring Um, your sitter with you, or you can bring your family with you and you can apply for, you know, some of um, that funding to cover the cost of childcare. And so those things, uh, we begin to see more and more in the field because we know there are certain things that are just, um, that you just can't control. There are certain things that you can't control and that are mainly centered and focused around women in STEM. I really appreciate you saying that and bringing that forward because that's something that um, when we talk about gender equality in STEM, people don't think about, you know, that's a burden that the female has to bear that the male 
in STEM doesn't. And it's, you know, how do I balance the children that need me or may need to be breastfed throughout the day yes. uh, versus, you know, a male who can just walk away. Uh, I know when I decided to marry and have a family, I was in a postdoc and the PI at the time said to me, if I had known you were interested in motherhood, I don't know if I would have chosen you for the lab. Wow. And it was wow. amazing. And I just, I was so taken back. And that's when I knew I had to go because wow. I, you know, once the baby came or whatever came with it, I was not in a supportive environment, you know, and that really said a lot. And at the time, of course, I didn't know about any of the Title IX or anything, but mm -hmm. it was very inappropriate for him to say to me. But yeah. that's what you were, that's what, you know, you, I faced, you know, just because I had made a decision for my happiness. He was married with a wife and had made his decision, but I couldn't get married and have kids and be okay. And be a right? scientist. Exactly. It, it, it has, um, it's quite interesting. I think about who supported me, you know, um, throughout this journey to become a scientist, who supported me. And there were a lot of women who supported me at Spelman. There were, you know, um, I, I participated in this dance troupe. And so um, the Nigerian that ran that dance troupe, he was very supportive of us. And when we would travel with him, he would always encourage us. He called, he called us the Fabulous Five. There were five of us Spelman students who danced. Um, he did Yoruba dancing while we were at Spelman. And we had that, we had that support. Um, when I was doing my postdoc, I had the support of men mostly. Uh, I did have some support of some colleagues who were women, but those in key positions were men. And they actually were really supportive when I decided to have children in the postdoc. Uh, they said, take, take your time, do what you need to do, uh, and then come back, focus, you know, do what you need to do. And so, you know, I don't want to give the impression that women are the only people who can support other women. It is important that we do because there are only experiences that we share. And I'm gonna share one of those with you. But I want to highlight the fact that it has to be a collaboration of life, if you will. Men and women, young men, older men, young women, older women, uh, African-American, Black American, Hispanic Americans, all of us have to support each other in order for us to make a difference in STEM. We all have to support each other. Right. I think there's some, you know, some definitely a lot of gaps and I'm grateful to you for doing this and helping to, to narrow this gender gap. Very important that, that this happens and I celebrate you in this effort. I really do. I wanna applaud you and thank you for what you're doing um, to close the gender gap. But I wanna also just kind of remind your listeners that it's important that we all celebrate each other and encourage each other because one of the major challenges that I faced when I was at a postdoc is I lost a child. At, at a, here I am, a woman scientist, uh, and made a decision to have a child and we lost a child. I was getting ready to do an experiment and got a phone call and it was a sudden death. And I study heart disease. And so here it is in your hands. Here you have the situation you have to deal with a son. He was almost, almost six months old, almost six months old, who dies of heart disease. 
and here you are, this is what you studied. And that day that we received, that I received that phone call, we had this groundbreaking experiment that we'd done and it was just uh, quite interesting how things turned out that day. And so when you talk about challenges for women, that is something that um, no one else can really experience. You know, a man doesn't have a child, but they can experience the loss with you, but it is different for a woman in science, just a woman in general who loses a child. Amen. Chastity, I really, uh, you know, you just floored me because I don't think I knew that story. Mm. So just blessings to you (laughs) because I can and I can't, I can and I don't want to, you know. Yeah, you know, just being a female in this career and Mm -hmm. trying to make it through, it has its challenges of its own. It does. Um, Moving us to our third segment, because you've given us just so many gems uh, today. Uh, It's just been really a pleasure to talk to you. Um, So I just want to ask you to think in your head, any part of the timeline from your birth up until now, uh, and you see yourself and you would like to give that person some advice, um, what would you say to them to help them persist in a STEM career? What would I say to my younger self and the K-12 self? I would say, ask about research experience. Ask about research experiences or careers in STEM. Ask early. To my college self, I would say, think about planning a career path. Think about planning a career path earlier. And think about why you want to choose the career path of choice. I would also say to my college, my younger college self, I would say, think about building wealth and think about what you're passionate about and how you can utilize what you're passionate about to build wealth for future generations, not just financial wealth, but intellectual property, intellectual wealth. I would say keep the faith to my uh, postdoc self. I would say keep the faith. It's the faith that really helped me to get through the loss of a child, experiencing something that you would never want anyone else to feel or experience. And to my pre-10 year self, I would say be your authentic self. Find a way to merge your research with your passion and be unapologetic for it. And I would say to myself today, do you. Do you, boo. (laughs) I'm sorry. Do you. And if I could speak to younger women who are listening, I would say choose your words wisely. Words are powerful. They can create and they can destroy. You can use your words to hurt someone or you can use your words to elevate them. You can use your words to advocate for someone. Choose your words. They're very powerful. Choose your words wisely. Chastity, you have just brought that all the way home. Uh, Ending with choose your words wisely. 
for me, you've always been your authentic self, or that's what I saw in you from the day I met you. You were always you. I never saw you move the pendulum. And so I think you resonated for a very long time as your authentic, unapologetic self. We have to get out of here with do you. I mean, if there was ever any culturally relevant <laughs> word we needed to use, word, using your words, do you, boo. <laughs> and so I really would speak to junior faculty, especially those who have made the decision to go to HBCUs, to teach at HBCUs or MSIs, to really find a way to be your authentic self and bring that to the research environment to the teaching environment, because I believe that is what will change STEM. That will change STEM education. That will change STEM research, because there are questions that only we can ask. Right. They're only, they're questions that only we can ask. They are ways that only we can push our students where other people couldn't push them. You know, they begin to see us as parents sometimes. And, and so, you know, they're walking through the halls or not walking through the halls and you don't see them and you see them over there at the cafeteria. What? Why weren't you in class? <laughs> this is one of my memories of you. We were walking to McCallum, me, you, Charlotte, Charlotte, right? Okay, okay. me, you, Charlotte, Alicia, I think all of us were together. And you said that on your way to work, on your way to lab, you would always play this song, get out the way. <laughs> back in my mind every now and again yes girl yes yes yes, yes, yes. well hey I can't I still take that spirit with me ain't much some things have changed but that one stays <laughs> yep I want to thank you so much for joining us here at the STEM Lab podcast it has been wonderful catching up with you because this is what I felt like you know we have done uh, and just thank you for all that you do for women in STEM, being such a great mentor, keeping students in the pipeline, your graduate students moving forward, uh, and just continuously challenging the undergraduate students to be the best that they can be so that they can persist toward a STEM career. I just want to thank you for your time. Thank you for all of your efforts uh, and continue to uh, do great work in the lab. I know that if anybody's going to make a difference in hypertension for the African-American community, you will. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for the um, invitation. Labmates, we want to thank Dr. Bradford for stopping by the STEM Lab podcast. She is definitely making her mark in the STEM world, and we look forward to the great discoveries from the Bradford Lab. I am your host, Dr. Sabrina Walthall, and I thank you so much for listening. Talk with you on the next episode. Bye.